Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from the Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti. And I'm Natalie Sawyer, back from my own international break. <laughs> I won't ask what you've been up to during international break. No, I think my voice might tell you that. Exactly. <laughs> now in the studio with us, it's the Times Chief Statsman, Bill Edgar. And down the line, it's George Colkin. Later on, we'll be joined by the incomparable Paul Joyce to discuss his article on international injuries and the impact the World Cup is having on the Premier League. But we start with a big weekend at the bottom of the Premier League. Claudio Ranieri takes charge of his first match as the Fulham manager as they host Southampton at Craven Cottage. Now, Fulham are bottom of the table with the worst defence in the division. And Gab, you've literally written the book on Ranieri. You know him well. So surely the defence is what he'll have worked on in training this week. Yeah, and if Claudio Ranieri were here, he would say, yes, Natalie, we need to concede fewer goals, but you know, you you attack as one, you defend as one, you want heart, blah, blah, blah. Oh, it's like, it's like he's here. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think in practice, um, what he's going to do, and look, it's true, obviously, it, it depends what the players further up the pitch do off the ball, but... Equally, if you go back through his history, I think what you're going to find is that chemistry is really important to him. And I think he's going to... And and I think it's also important to the players at Fulham because they're going to be very aware that if the other defensive partners change every week, it also kind of gives them an alibi. I would expect that that is something that he's worked on. I think he's going to see where the pieces fit together, what kind of a team they want to be, whether it's more more counterattacking or not. I'll be really curious to see what he does with with Sari. Um in the sense that obviously, you know, you you've got this this playmaker with a fairly I think unusual skill set. Do you put holding midfielders around him, tighten it up and effectively play on the counter? Um and also what he does with with Ryan Sessegnon as well because Ryan Sessegnon's still so young and he's such a special talent that 
simply because he's played as a fullback before doesn't mean he needs to do that again. And I'm not saying he's going to play him Jamie Vardy-like, but I think you might see him used differently. Obviously, George, you know all about Alexander Mitrovic and what he did up at Newcastle. Just how important is he then to Fulham this season, considering at the back of it, they've not done very well, but up front he has been scoring goals. Yeah, he certainly started the season season very well. I mean, it's kind of sort of fascinating to see how a player can fit somewhere so well and then and then not somewhere else. And that's led to its own debate at Newcastle about whether Rafa Benitez was right to let him go and why he never sort of thrived under him at St James's. And I think the feeling always was well, certainly from from the way. Rafa framed it was that he just didn't sort of do enough in training to sort of justify starting ahead of people like Dwight Gale last season and, you know, even Hosselu, kind of a much more limited player, but very willing. And, you know, that he didn't have the right discipline to sort of fit into a system. Now, if your system is less structured or, you know, if you're the kind of manager that that likes a bit of mayhem or likes people to sort of go out and express themselves, then then perhaps he can fit in, you know, fit in better. But, you know, I suppose it's the same as anything. There has to be the right system and the right environment for a player to thrive. And he certainly kind of found that under Jukanovic at Fulham, someone who knew him, who knew him very well. It'll be interesting to see what now happens. I mean, I think they, they do need him and they do need his goals but they also need you know they need to try and find a way of harnessing harnessing him and that's something that that Benitez never never quite managed. As we said then they host Southampton Mark Hughes the favourite with the bookies to be the next Premier League manager to lose his job and Bill the stats don't make for good reading for Hughes during his time in charge do they? No they don't he, he did just enough to uh, keep Southampton up last season mm-hmm. he came, came in for the last eight games and got eight points scraped through but now over the 20 games he's been there they've only got 16 points which is certainly relegation form um there is a kind of feeling that uh he's lost his spark his sparky i mean he, he, he'd gone for the last 12 months for the last say for the, the last 12 months at stoke he'd, i mean he'd done very well overall at stoke but he'd, he'd really gone downhill at the end so now now that he's really struggling at southampton as well he's you get the feeling is this kind of does he come to the end of the the line you know and is the only person in football history to have had uh, 450 games as both a player and a manager in the top flight so he's a real uh, legend of the game but as things are going um, you just wonder if you know you could quite understand if they were to lose against Fulham uh, he wouldn't be that surprised if he got the push and then he may struggle to get get back in the game in, in the, the top flight anyway. Equally that Southampton, you know, the Southampton's decline seems to be fairly sort of entrenched and it was entrenched before he got the job. And I mean, I don't get to, you know, I don't kind of get to watch them very often, but what the root cause of that might be. So, I mean, it can't all be Mark Hughes, can it? If it, no. if it was sort of entrenched, if it was entrenched before he arrived too. Well, but it's curious because they've had the same people for a long time and they've generally been been praised for for their youth academy, generally been praised for their for the transfer activity and it's weird it seems as if in the last couple windows maybe they made some incorrect decisions and at Southampton it's not the manager you know he's not Mark Hughes isn't Harry Redknapp and buy and sell players but obviously has a big input um I wonder if there's been some some dissent there um but there's also I mean yeah and there's also that thing that they were kind of held as this incredible success story for sort of doing the opposite 
for that counterintuitive thing of continually selling their best players, usually, usually to Liverpool, and and then somehow bouncing back and somehow, you know, making a success of that. Is it is it as simple as saying that, you know, the moment you have a window when you don't bring in the right players to replace, or you know, a couple of windows when you don't spend that money wisely or you don't spend enough of it that eventually that will come back to haunt you and that the sort of the natural order of things will re-establish themselves that if you sell your best players eventually you're going to suffer for it let's move on to uh, and well two other teams we've been speaking about newcastle of course um two teams who have struggled at the start of this season burnley host newcastle on monday nights at turf more than george two wins out of two though for, for newcastle in november is Rafa finally found the right recipe this season well, I was away for both of them, so probably, yes, I think that's probably the key. I think, you know, 48 years of being a jinx, I think that's um, just stay away from... I mean, that, that would actually suit me quite well, actually, not having to watch them anymore. But, um, <laughs> well, I, 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 mean, I don't think there's been any magic formula. It's not really been a case of him sort of desperately switching around personnel or tactics and stuff. He certainly hasn't done it with, with tactics. He doesn't really have the personnel to do that. I think he would say it's it's more of a case of that they continued to work together, they continued to practice things, eventually things would turn. Certainly for the last two games, what has been noticeable is Salomon Rondon, you know, their loan signing from West Brom in the summer, being in the team, staying in the team and getting fitness. And I watched the Bournemouth game and he was, I don't want to use the word outstanding, I think in Newcastle terms, certainly in this season's terms, he was outstanding. He was a focal point for the team. That's absolutely what they've lacked. They they used him well. He held the ball up. He showed he's capable of scoring goals. And that is the player that they thought and hoped they'd signed in the summer, somebody who can kind of give give the team some some sort of direction and spark. And, you know, hopefully that is the turning point for the team now and they can, you know, they can at least establish themselves a bit more it will be difficult this season just as it was for much of last season but hopefully they should they should have enough to sort of stay where they are or or stay in a position of safety and one other thing is um ki sung yang uh, has come back and yeah. uh, the three games he's returned for have been two wins and a draw so uh, yeah. he is he's proved himself as a a good solid premier league performer so um he can hang around and stay fit then he'll make a difference I expect you to say he was key to their survival oh fantastic today um but bill burnley then uh, who newcastle take on so solid defensively last season they finished seventh but only fulham have conceded more goals than them this campaign what's been the difference um, it's hard to explain, really. I mean, it, they overachieved last season, I guess you'd say, so they come closer to to where you would expect them to be. Last season, they conceded more or less exactly one goal per game. This season, it's more or less exactly two goals per game, so a huge difference at, at the back. Um, I mean, Joe Hart is playing rather than Nick Pope, and I mean, his save ratio is not as good for, for what that's worth. I guess Burnley's success, relative success over the past few years, has been based on a very, very settled team. And Sean Dykes makes far fewer changes per game than any other manager in the Premier League. And when they played their six uh, Europa League games in um, late July and August, and they were having to chop and change a lot. So whether that sort of unsettled them a bit psychologically, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. But um, otherwise, the defence is 
pretty much the same as before. Tarkovsky and me, centre-backs, Loughton on the right. Charlie Taylor's playing on the left because um, Stephen Ward is injured, but uh, that's the only change, really. So it, it's you wouldn't be surprised if they kind of, you know, got, got themselves together a bit and uh, pushed towards mid-table. This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. Now, every Thursday at thetimes.co.uk, our very own Bill Edgar provides 11 trivia teasers for you, and here is one for you on this podcast. As we've discussed, Fulham's new manager is Claudio Ranieri, who's also managed their neighbours, Chelsea. Who is the only other person to have been permanent manager of both clubs? That's... Um, Bill, can you give us a clue in any way to help us out on this? I'll tell you that he was in charge of Fulham when George Best... Uh, had a season there, 1976 to 77. Oh. And he was also uh, in charge of Chelsea in the late 80s. He arrived halfway through uh, one season um, where he was unable to stop them from going down in 1988, but he stayed the following year and took them up in 89, and they've been in the top flight ever since. I know the answer to this one. Oh, for goodness sake. I didn't know the full and bit at all, but I happen to know Chelsea managers from that era. And I have it narrowed down to two. And he, did he pass away? We see it about, um, I think, about three years ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's all right. Well, I haven't a clue. And if you're like me, you haven't a clue, stick around to the end of the podcast to find out the answer. The Nations League campaign ended in promotion for England and Scotland, but for the Republic of Ireland, there was a more seismic change this week as Martin O'Neill has left his post as the manager after five years in charge. Roy Keane also leaves his role as the assistant of the national team. Now, George, they had the fewest shots of any team in the Nations League group stage. So does that sort of point to a key reason for the change that they're just not attacking enough? I think it's... That's a small part of the kind of bigger story. If, if you, you know, if you look at this year, then uh, this calendar year, there's there's been no competitive victory. Um, there's been one win in nine. There have been, uh, I think, it's five hours without a goal, and there have been certainly concerns about attendances at the Aviva Stadium. It's that kind of thing. I mean, if if it was only based on the fact that they're not scoring goals, I think that would be a little bit harsh in the sense that against Denmark the other night. They started with Aidan O'Brien up front. Aidan O'Brien isn't starting games for Millwall. Millwall um, are 21st in the championship and O'Brien has scored one league goal this season. That's really a fairly accurate summary of where Ireland are at the moment in terms of the personnel they've got for them. You know, their other sort of regular striker, Shane Long, hasn't scored a goal this season. I think he scored two goals for club and country, you know, in all competitions last season. I think he scored six goals, club and country in all competitions the season before. They don't have a regular goal scorer and haven't done since Robbie Keane's retirement. So, you know, that is a problem that whoever Martin O'Neill's successor is will will face as well. And it's really a case of sort of dwindling resources. In ter- you know, in terms of changing managers, you know, in the context of this year, as I say, I think that's I think that's sort of an understandable decision. I think Martin himself would sort of say that, you know, the UEFA Nations League isn't what it was all about. The real business kind of began with the European qualifying campaign and he would, you know, point to his record of getting Ireland to the World Cup 
qualifying playoffs and into the European Championships in 2016. But equally, it's not very easy to look back at the recent record and say that there isn't a reason to sort of freshen things up too. Well, I'll... I've got Martin O'Neill's statement here. Um, and he says, I will not forget the night in Lille when we beat Italy to secure the nation's best ever achievement in the Euros competition. It was a dead rubber for Italy. And Italy but, played a weakened team, didn't they? Yes. But, <laughs> come on. You don't, like, uh, just, what do you want to hear? Just, just to go and like, like that dance on his grave? Stop it, Bill. Um, the terrific night. Was, that, but, I, mean, but I, was, I was there for that. And it was, it, I mean, what you both said, you know, that's, it's factually accurate. It's Bill. It's equally, Bill. E- equally, I think that was only the, oh, I'll get this wrong, but he was only, perhaps he was the, only the third Ireland manager to get a team through into the knockout phase. And it was a brilliant moment. And if you've, you know, I was very lucky to, to follow the team in, in 2012 when off the pitch, being around Ireland fans was absolutely incredible. Watching the team was an, a horrific experience. They lost all three games and were the first team to kind of come back. Seeing a relatively successful Ireland team taking on bigger teams and doing well it's always against the odds it's never going to be pretty um but it was you know france turned out to be kind of a you know a, a really good tournament for them and there's more highlights that you were probably a part of the night that ireland beat world champions germany at home in dublin that was, yeah, was there for that. That was, uh shane long did score that night it was do you remember that probably the last goal for ireland it probably was, wasn't it? <laughs> that, that, yeah, yeah, that long punt upfield from from the goalkeeper, he latches onto it and then smacks it in. Yeah, and I remember the kind of just the whole stadium shaking, and it was and brilliant. James McLean's yeah. goal and that euphoric win against Wales and Cardiff that put them through to the playoffs. That, <laughs> yeah, that's I was his there, third highlight. I was there for that as well, yeah. you're there for yeah. all the O'Neill highlight. No, but I, I mean, I think the FA of Ireland have a number of dysfunctions, starting with the person running it. I mean, John Delaney. Uh, you can just do some googling. There's serious issues. It's the kind of thing that, you know, when when the politics of football people like to get snarky about other countries um, yeah. and other parts of the world, you know, sometimes you feel like, hey, why don't you look it on your own doorstep? You know, Martin O'Neill and before him Trapattoni strike me as the kind of appointments that you make when you're saying, all right, we're purely results oriented. We don't care if it's ugly. Um, you know, I, I personally don't think Martin O'Neill's played good football really since Celtic uh maybe even lesser before that I don't think there's anything innovative in what he does it's just about squeezing things out and I think it's often horrendous to watch but you know what yeah if that's his brief are you better off doing that or are you better off saying you know what why don't we develop a manager who yeah. goes and plays for, for for most of the republic's history they've achieved zero right I think 1990 was their first tournament 1988 was their first 1988 tournament. sorry Right until 1988, they've been a joke. Right, it's you know, ha ha. They've been, you know, a couple notches above Luxembourg. Maybe. I mean, it's important to say that they were a joke in terms of their results, but their players that they had in the 1980s. I mean, I've just uh, had a look at them uh, last night. In the first half of the 1980s, Mark Lawrence and Ronnie Whelan, Michael Robinson, Jim Beglin, Liam Brady, David O'Leary, Frank Stapleton, Kevin Moran, Chris Hewton, Tony Galvin. Kevin Sheedy, all at the top end of the yeah, the, uh, right. the top flight. I mean, there's then, absolutely no doubt they were so, really top class players, I, but they got they didn't get never been to a tournament. I, I, so I, I have the impression that given that that was your history, so then so then, then you decided to become more more results oriented, and and you got the results with with, with Jack Charlton, and then obviously 
um, later on, you know, qualifying for tournaments. Obviously, tournaments also got bigger, so it was easier to qualify perhaps to some degree. But if they went now and they said, you know what, we're just going to try to try to develop. We're going we're gonna to try to to play good football. We're going to try to play more positive football. Also, yeah. because in the Nations League, we're playing teams that are equal to us uh, in terms of size and resources. And we're going to try to impose ourselves more. But that could also mean maybe not qualifying for, for, for tournaments in, in some situations. And how would the public take it if they said, we're going to try to be more positive than, than we have been under previous managers? And would that be a problem? Because Delaney would say, well, no, because we need to be in these big playoffs because this is how we get Aircom and sponsors and whatever other stuff he does. I mean, is, is that yeah. the conundrum? That's Well, you've, you've absolutely sort of 100% encapsulated the sort of debate that's going on in Ireland. I'm, I think the concern is that it's, it's, that debate is perhaps not happening within the FAI. And that, you know, so you're absolutely right. When uh, Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane came in, the, the, the job was to get Ireland qualified for tournaments. And, you know, that was seen as their job. Trapattoni had got them to the Euros in 2012, but before then, their previous tournament appearance had been 2002. So that was that was the key. And, you know, by that standard, Martin did did pretty well he got them to the to the euros he got them to the world cup qualifying playoffs that was ahead of their seeding so they were definitely overachieving in that sense however the disconnect between ireland's domestic game the league of ireland i mean i've over the years i've gone to i've gone to a few league of ireland games you know the facilities are all even even at a club like dundalk i interviewed Stephen Kinney, they're incredibly successful manager. The, the infrastructure there is terrible. The resources are non-existent, aside from what they get from, from European football. And, you know, there was no kind of joined-up relationship between the senior team and what happens underneath. Now, that's 100% not Martin O'Neill's fault and, and sort of responsibility. Now, Kenny, in actual fact, is someone who's... There's been a bit of a groundswell of support for him to get the job and you know i find that he, he's a fascinating man he's kind of built Dundalk from nothing he's incredibly intelligent he's very sensitive he's very emotional he cried when we had when we did the interview when he was talking about what he'd sort of done at Dundalk and whether you know i cry i'm not trying to make a po- you know make any kind of point here whether it would be fair to throw him in to become island manager and immediately thrust him into a kind of European championship qualifying campaign, which begins in March. I don't, you know, I just don't know. But that he has excelled in, you know, getting great results for a sort of Irish team that has no you know, no real right to kind of be competing at the level they do in Europe. And, and has, you know, I think it's won four of the last five domestic championships. And yeah, that is, you know, that is the big concern that the FAI, they have a big mortgage on the Aviva Stadium. I think it's something like 40 million euros and stuff like that. So they need attendances at the stadium. Uh, they also host games in 2020. So there's seen to be, um, you know, kind of a, a, a real need for the Irish team to actually be there at that tournament too. And of course, with the larger number of teams qualifying for that tournament, it should be an opportunity for them to get there too. So can they afford to take five years, whatever, out of tournaments, out of the spotlight to kind of build? I don't think they can, but that's what absolutely what they need. And a manager should come in and look at the League of Ireland and, and think about selecting those players. But equally, 
they just may not be anywhere near good enough. And I, I suppose the whole structural thing is that there just aren't a lot of, you know, Bill's absolutely right to look at the players of the past and talk about some of the kind of big names they have. Even in 2002 at the World Cup when they were there, I kind of wrote a bit about this this morning uh, in this morning's paper. They had players who went on to win the Premier League and Damien Duff, Robbie Keane, who played for sort of some, you know, huge clubs over the course of his career, you know, others who were at Manchester United and Liverpool and Tottenham and things like that, they just don't have those players at clubs now. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustolium's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're joined now by Paul Joyce, who's written for The Times about the impact of the World Cup on the Premier League, specifically when it comes to the amount of injuries being suffered by players. Paul, what do the numbers say then regarding this? Yeah, so I think, first of all, we have to say that injuries are going to be part and parcel of football. But what's interesting is the is the number of injuries since the World Cup. Um, the figures that we found were 84 Premier League players were involved in the knockout stages. And 52 of them have, have picked up injuries, which is, equates to 62%. And then if you break it down even further, of, of those 84, 60 represent the big six clubs, or the perceived big six clubs. And 41% have suffered injuries um, since the World Cup. And that equates to 68%. So quite revealing figures, really, in terms of the the impact that the World Cup's having in, in terms of late arrival back for pre-season, the prolonging of the previous season in terms of friendlies after after that season and then the, the World Cup itself. Mm-hmm. So I was surprised that they were that high. You know, 62% of people who, who went to the World Cup knockout stages have suffered an injury in, in, 
since returning to the Premier League. Are there any solutions to this? I mean, in terms of the injuries, obviously you've got, you have impact injuries, which not much you can do about that. But then obviously you've got muscular injuries, you've got injuries that maybe don't, don't heal properly, not enough time off. Did you get a certain consensus in terms of what, what the pattern there might have been? I think the main thing is just the striking the balance of, of proper rest. What happens, especially in the knockout stages, is that um, players come back in dribs and drabs, depending on when the team is knocked out. Then they go into a pre-season, but there's the pressure for them all, regardless of what time they come back, to be ready for the Premier League season. And the bodies are conditioned to having six weeks off after the end of a normal season, then they go into a conditioning mini pre-season with the, with the clubs before the season starts. And it's just the toll of, of that is, you know, is hitting hard. I think the attitude of some managers in this has been interesting in that you've got Mourinho as soon as sort of Manchester United are on pre-season tour in America, sort of putting the pressure on Lukaku and, and Pogba to come back. I think one of his quotes is, you know, we need them back early because the start of the season is going to be, you know, we're going to be in trouble, is what his quote was. So obviously he's using them in his sort of battle with Edward Wood and, and getting extra resources in. But then when we were criticising Lukaku for his maybe performances over the last month, he's not doing this, he's not doing that, don't really factor in that, you know, his season, he basically played the full World Cup because he was third and fourth place player from the the day before the final, has a few weeks off and then is plunged straight back into the season with, with Manchester United. So I think part of the, the problem is that managers have their own selfish interests, don't they? That, you know, for example, sake as well, the, the player who, who has been injured since the start of the Premier League season, the focus is on them shaving off days and the recovery time. The, the physio that I spoke to, Mark Leather, who used to work for Liverpool and Bolton, you know, he was stressing that, you know, nature is nature. If you're, you know, pushing a player to get back for a certain game, then it can become self-perpetuating that you lose a player further down the line as well. So On Tuesday, I was in, I was in Brussels where the, you had the president of UEFA and uh, the president of the European Clubs Association speaking. And yeah. one of the things that they want to, European Clubs Association want to look at, and it's a bit curious in the sense that, you know, they represent big clubs, obviously, want to have the players, but... They talked about, and I think this is something that they brought up with FIFPro, they talked about having mandatory rest periods um, where basically it's a bit like, you know, they have these for like long distance truck drivers and air traffic controllers and and pilots where you have a period of four weeks or something where you simply do not play and cannot play. Um, Another suggestion, which I've been doing the rounds, is you simply, and you need to work out how you get the split between clubs and club and country, but you say, you know what? You can only be in, say, 50 or 55 match day squads in a 12-month period. Obviously, injuries can happen at every time, right? But, Bill, you yeah. know your numbers. If Romelu Lukaku plays 20% fewer minutes, for example, then there's 20% less chance that he gets injured, right? Um, well, yeah, literally, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, but I mean, um, 
Yes, and of course it detracts from the product. The, the clubs, associations, and the the authorities will be you know worried about the great number of injuries because it's just you know there's no De Bruyne to watch this season so far basically, mm. and we've got so much enjoyment of the neutral last season. Um, I mean, it seems that it's either a coincidence that there have been lots of injuries since the World Cup, in which case there's nothing to worry about, or um, either the medical departments have, have messed up. They didn't, you know, they're, they're so advanced now. They should have should have known the risks, yeah, they or they did. They did tell. Uh, they did pass on this club, message yeah. to the manager, and the managers just ignored it. I mean, it, when Guardiola um, was talking after De Bruyne got injured. Uh, he said something like, oh, it's not, not surprising given how much um, he played in the World Cup. Well, if it's not surprising, why were you bringing him back? And, and as you said, uh, Paul, Mourinho was um, talking about his, uh, the need for his players to come back for the day one of the season. He's saying they need to, uh, this is great, you know, Lukaku's come back and this, this and that player's come back. They're showing they're, they're selfless, they're acting in the interest of the team. It's not selfless, it's against the interest of the team. It means that they're, going to, they're increasing their chances of being injured. And, uh, I, I mean, it's, it's short-sighted what the managers sh- should do, is to say, well, take the first two weeks off, you're going to miss the, that's two Premier League games you'll miss. But you'll avoid a, qu- a reasonably likely injury further down the line, where you'll miss, quite likely, more than two games. I think what's interesting as well is that, you know, I was probably criticising Mourinho's attitude a bit there. I think some of the players as well, it's interesting their attitudes on things like that. For example, say Jordan Henderson was asking Klopp to come back. Klopp had said, no, you you need three weeks rest. Jordan Henderson was asking Klopp, can he come back early? Perhaps because Liverpool had signed a couple of midfielders that summer and and you feel, you know, you you don't want to reduce your chances of, of playing that season. But I thought that was a really interesting attitude that the captain of Liverpool is wanting to come back within three weeks. Klopp stood firm, said no, eased him into the, the season. And yet Jordan still had the, the hamstring injury that's kept him out for basically the last month bar two brief substitute appearances for Liverpool in England. So yeah, I think Tracy, the it, managers are not always guilty. I think the players as well, you know, maybe it's a little bit of concern means that they're pushing themselves back. I think the situation and these relationships between club medical staffs and, 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 and players when it comes to injuries, I don't understand why a professional footballer in the Premier League, I think he should have his own personal fitness guy and he should have his own personal doctor because everybody's body reacts differently. There's going to be different situations. You have an instant second opinion because, you know, let's face it, the clubs want to look after their assets, but you have disagreements all the time over treatment, what treatment they should get. I think players are entitled to have their own second opinion, the guy who they pay and looks out for them, you know, and is not involved with the club, in addition, obviously, to the club. I just find it extraordinary that, you know, there's people on the tennis tour who make one-tenth of what a professional footballer does. These guys can afford their own fitness guy and their own doctor. And it seems that in the Premier League and in other top leagues, very few people do that. They go like, oh, yeah, what does a doc say? All right, yeah, okay, oh, I'll come and train, you know. It may be that in Jordan Henderson's case, maybe he doesn't come back. Maybe he's worried about it. Maybe he goes and he trains by himself, right? Because it's not like Klopp sent uh, a chaperone over to make sure that he was sitting on his sofa, you know, with a PlayStation, right? Jordan Henderson probably went out and had his own training regimen. I'm not saying that's why I got injured, but I, every case is different, and I think you need to get individual advice for players and I 
and, and not just from the club's perspective, but from the player's perspective too, because your asset is your body. I suppose we've seen over the years an increasing number of sort of, you know, we see the social media videos of, of players go on holiday before they come back for the start of pre-season. They quite often take a, a fitness coach or they post videos of them doing some work. I think Luke Shaw did some stuff in the summer, didn't he? I think one of the United physios or medical staff went with him and he had another coach with him. Uh, it's an interesting point. I mean, as you say, I think medical departments at clubs are, have become a lot bigger in recent years and may be able to give more individual um, patterns. But I think it comes back to the pressure from the players and managers to get back as soon as possible. And especially for the big six clubs, when you're in this cycle of Champions League, Premier League, Champions League, Premier League, the, you know, the, it's the fear of missing matches that, that probably exacerbates the fact that they've not had enough uh, rest from the summer. Hi there, and welcome to The Sweeper, which is the Times' fantasy football tips service. I'm Charlie Scott, and with me is Paddy Rombert. Hello. And we are back because the Premier League is back, and rejoice. Yeah, it's always a long wait during the international break. Absolutely, it was an exciting one, but we're glad it's back. Plenty to discuss. What's uh, What's been on your brain this week? Well... There's a little piece that I've done that's going to be going up on the website later this afternoon on Leicester and Wolves, who I think I've been looking at their stats in the past three game weeks, so over the past month, and they've been creating a hell of a lot, particularly Wolves. Um, those two sides, the only other side that have had as many shots as them in those three games is Chelsea. I think Wolves were very unlucky to only pick up a point in their last three games. They drew against Arsenal last time out, could easily have won. They lost by gold to Brighton and Spurs. But I think they've got a great run of fixtures and players like Raul Jimenez, who Paddy reliably tells me is the most transferred player in this week, Mm -hmm. I think he could be set to pick up plenty more points. He's got 18 points in his past two game weeks. Um, Elsewhere in that team, João Moutinho has been very creative during that time and the wing backs I think Matt Doxy's a bit of a bit of a risk for this weekend um, with a knock that he picked up but by all accounts he's only going to miss one game and I think their run is so good that I wouldn't transfer him out I'd bench him if you have got him What about left back because isn't Johnny injured for a, about six weeks now? Yeah I mean Nuno probably a bit bit peeved by the international break losing both his wing backs uh, Johnny's out and apparently Ruben Vinagre who is their 19 year old Portuguese left back is going to fill in and the good thing about him is he's even cheaper than Johnny he's 4.3 million so I don't know he's certainly one for the watch list but the bolder managers out there may punt for him this week yeah that could be worth a punt uh, the, the expensive um, end of, of players I mean it's quite a tricky week I think you've got Chelsea and Arsenal who both play Spurs in the next two you've got some sides with awkward away games I think the only player at the moment who's sort of in banging form and has a couple of nice fixtures coming up is Anthony Martial but he's a doubt as well possibly for this weekend wait and see what uh, what Jose Mourinho says about that in his press conference I would have a quiet word with West Ham actually they face Man City this weekend but once they get through that they've got an amazing run of fixtures and I like the look of both Felipe Anderson and Marco Arnautovic who are scoring points nicely and could be set to kick off even bigger soon you do love Arnautovic yeah don't forget that you can sign up for the sweeper which is the weekly email that we send out for each game week at thetimes.co.uk forward slash fantasy football or you can get involved on Facebook send Paddy and I screenshots of your teams or messages for any transfers you might be considering and we can give you our feedback for each week's deadline good luck
Now it's the return of our predictions game. A reminder that we try and predict the outcome of five games across the weekend and over the season so far. I currently hold a 6-5, so it's a slender lead over you, Gab. Um, But I did make an almighty comeback to get to that. Yeah, with a number of sort of screwy things like those Wolves results and, so and whatever. No, that's all right. I'm, I'm not bitter at all. I just think, you know, it's, it's every game has its own story. <laughs> all right, then. Come on, then. Let's start with the first fixture. Spurs against Chelsea. Ooh. At Wembley. Indeed. Um, I know some of the injured guys are coming back for for Poch. I also know that Chelsea are the only team in Europe's big five leagues who have yet to lose a game this season and I know I know Bill's leaning forward to remind me of the community shield but that's not a real <laughs> football match so that doesn't count so I'm going to say Spurs 1 Chelsea 1 Ooh okay well I've gone for a 2-1 win for Chelsea What's next We've got Fulham and Southampton that we talked about earlier did, uh, early potential relegation derby mm. crazy Claudio <laughs> against Sparky Who's lost um, his spark? Who's lost his spark? Thank you. <laughs> the question is: Can Fulham tighten up their defense against the uh, highly prolific Shane Long and Co? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to go nil nil. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I, yeah, I am denied over this one. In the end, I've gone for. A, I'm going to go for a Fulham win. I just think Claudio Ranieri is going to inspire them, but a narrow one nil win. You'll notice at this stage that I've gone first on my predictions twice already, I know, which is distinctly you... <laughs> unfair. So but mine you need to go down. first. Yeah, okay. All right, okay, I'll go first. Um, Arsenal head down to Bournemouth this weekend. And I just, I think Unai Emery's just, you know, getting Arsenal playing the right way at the moment. I think obviously Bournemouth, recent form hasn't been great, but obviously we know how well they've been doing. I still think Arsenal will come away with the win 2-1. Oh, no, I'm all on Team Fraser and Brooks. Are you? Eddie's oh, army. Right. No, 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 no. I'm going go, go to go Bournemouth 2-1. Ooh, okay. Huge game in the championship this weekend, Gab. Is it the Midlands Derby? It's, it's the Midlands Derby. It's Villa against Birmingham. Just think of Derby's just as an aside. Right. Who's Brentford's Derby with? What, King, Kingstonian? Well, well, this season you'd say it's QPR. Yeah, I know, but QPR, do they consider it? Wow. Is it one of those one-way things? Well, more recent history probably was Fulham. But obviously now Fulham are in the Premier League, so we forget about them. It's a tricky one when you say it like that. But obviously locally, it obviously is QPR, Fulham. Okay, so that's you really dislike QPR? I really don't. I but don't QPR like are QPR. more obsessed, I'm assuming, with... With Chelsea, with probably. Chelsea. Yeah. Got it. And Chelsea are more obsessed with Spurs, and Spurs are more obsessed with Arsenal. Yeah, and it's, it's the endless weird. food chain. Yeah. Yes. Weird, isn't it? Do you want me to go first? Absolutely, yes. I mean, I have to go with Dean Smith, don't I? I think, you know, he's doing he's doing a really good job at Villa. They're playing really good football as well. Birmingham, again, they were on a great run of form. I think they haven't won the last two, though. Um, and I think at Villa Park, I think they're going to come away with a 2-1 win for, for the villains. All right. Well, I, I'm going to be on... You've you won me over with, uh, oh. with your love of, of Dean Smith. Yeah. So I will join you in that. Okay. And I'm going to say Villa 2, Birmingham 0. Mm, okay. Finally, Lazio play Milan. Um, Lazio have had some up and down results. Everybody is injured for Milan. Caldara and Romagnoli at the back. Bonaventura and Biglia midfield. Suzo's fit, but he shoots on the halfway line all the time and just dribbles the ball and loses it. Um, the pressure is definitely on Milan. Not sure Lazio can play on the counter at home. 
So I'm going to go for a 1-1 draw. Oh, okay. I'm going to go for a 1-0 Lazio win. So it's just time to give you the answer to Bill Edgar's teaser. We noted that Claudio Ranieri will become the second man to be the full-time manager of Fulham and also Chelsea. Can we know off air that I knew the answer to this? It was my second choice. I had two guesses. And you it was did my second guess. guess. Yes, yes. We, we discussed sure. it off 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 mic as such. And yes, you did it's get it. The man this who right. shares a first name with former England top goal scorer and shares a second name with a man known as Judas in parts of North London who <laughs> left his club on a free transfer. Go on, Bill. So the answer is Bobby Campbell. He's the oh, only okay. man to have managed Fulham and Chelsea permanently. Ray Wilkins did manage Fulham and had yes. a couple of games as uh, care- in caretaker charge of Chelsea, oh. but uh, Bobby Campbell was the only one. See, Ray Wilkins would have been my choice, but then you went back into... So it was in the 70s. I think that didn't happen. So there you go. Interesting one. Thank you, Bill. That is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Bill Edgar, George Colkin and Paul Joyce. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. Just £1 a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. We'll be back on Monday ahead of a make-or-break week for English clubs in the Champions League. The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. Thank you.